Thank you for joining us for our series through the Book of Romans. This book is full of rich truths about the Christian life, and we hope that throughout our study, your identity in Christ and our call to communitas are affirmed in you each week. Let's dive into the text. How many of you guys have ever heard or said the like question of, what do you want first, the good news or the bad news? Have you ever gotten that before? Like, I think that's a dumb question. Can I just be really honest? Like, how about I don't want any bad news? I only want good news. Anybody only want good news today? Like, when you ask me, do you want the bad news? No. The answer is no. I do not want the bad news, but I do live in a world that feels like it just keeps dishing it out, right? Like, over and over and over again. And so we're picking up really part two of the end of Romans 8. And so we started last week talking specifically about the promise of God. That all things work together for good to those who love God, even when your two-year-old gets cancer. But I don't want the bad news. I only want the good news. I only want to be in a world where there is no more bad news. When two-year-olds never get diagnosed with cancer. When we think about the future, because for me, bad news is when I don't know what the future holds. Bad news is when it's like, man, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe for you right now, it's job loss. It's just this uncertainty. You're living in uncertain economic times. We all are. Maybe you have a job and you're like, I wish I lost my job. I can't stand going to work. It's painful. It hurts. There's this uncertainty of what Monday is going to bring. You live for the weekend. Maybe it's just relational strife. I apologize to my wife this week in the midst of a fight because on some level, I'm like, I'm preaching and I'm going to talk about how marriages aren't perfect. So clearly I get to practice what I preach. And so what's this mean when it's like, man, like we've joked at Vintage, your marriage had issues the moment that you personally joined it, right? Two imperfect people, sinners saved by grace, but also you still step on each other's toes when you're doing this dance called life. And and so you've got this this reality of this this brokenness. You've got this, this opportunity. You turn on the news and regularly you see there's some sort of revolt happening that feels like almost daily. Some sort of protest, something that's taking place. If you watch the news long enough, you'll remember there is a war going on. And not only is there a war going on, but even when that's done, there will be another one yet to come. You never dreamt that you could live in a world where there was no traffic. And you're like, God, I just wish there was no traffic someday. And then you got no traffic. It was called COVID. And you're like, can someone please give me traffic back? You're like, this is our life. This is the truth of what we wake up to every day. Like, I never thought in America we would have a U.S. food shortage. But they're saying that could be coming in the future. Guys, welcome to Vintage Grace. I hope you're encouraged this morning. (laughs) What do you want first, the good news or the bad news? Because the truth of the matter is every single one of us, the way that we define pain and suffering is the gap between our present state and our desired state. And there's gaps for every one of us in this room. Some of them are represented by pictures on the screen, but I'm here to encourage you that I think that we live in a world in the kingdom of God where there is no bad news. Because again, bad news means that that we don't know the future. There's this uncertainty. Guys, we gather today to serve and to worship a good God who has the world in his hands. He knows the future. He's designed it and created and invited you and me into that reality. And I believe at Vintage, and I believe Romans reminds us that there is no bad news in the kingdom, just news that God is using for his glory and for your good. And that doesn't diminish that life is hard. It doesn't diminish that the gaps are real. 
And then we can get overwhelmed by the uncertainty, the pain, and the suffering. Remember last week, here's where we ended our time in Romans. We ended going back to the gospel where Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yeah. No, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yeah. Peter, do you love me? And for a third time, I think at that point, Peter's starting to second guess. Does he not say yes appropriately? Am I speaking the Greek or the Aramaic? Like, Jesus doesn't get it. But here's the truth of the answer when God says, Drew, do you love me? The truth of the answer is we're like, yeah, God, I love you until I don't. Yeah, God, I love you, but actually I'm going to love you imperfectly, faithfully imperfect. I don't know about you, but try proposing to your, your wife and have her answer that way. Hey, babe, do you love me? Yeah, until I don't. She's not going to take the ring. You're not going to give it. And yet this is the world that we live in. And so here's the bad news this morning. The bad news is that you're not God. Can I encourage you? That's actually good news in the kingdom. The bad news is you're not God, which means that there's gaps in your life. It means that there's suffering and there's pain. It means all the names of Jesus that we looked at last week in our Roman study, that all those names do not apply to you. You are not Jira. You are not Rapha. You are not good, but God is. And so today we come remembering that there might be what appears to us in our limited perspective like bad news in the world, but there is only good news for those of you who are in Christ. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. That's where Paul's going to take us this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8 as we finish. And I'm just going to encourage you, I'm going to do my best today to talk as slow as possible. But there is so much to talk about in Romans 8. If you have your pens, get ready to write down all the homework I'm going to give you. There is so much that can dive in. Why? Because there is no depth of God's love for you. It just keeps going and going and going. And it's something good for us to dwell on, to meditate on, to think deeply about. And so Paul's going to call us today to consider the depth and the magnitude of God's love. God loves you. And he expresses it to you in powerful ways that Paul highlights. He's going to sacrifice and has sacrificed his greatest treasure so we might become his children. What then would he withhold if he's already given us his son? The love of Christ means that we have nothing to fear. It means we have eternity figured out. It means in the gap, he is with us and he is for us, that the kingdom and the king and his victory is here. And that's good news. So it might be bad news that you're not God, but it's actually good news for everyone else that you're not God and that God is with you and that he is for you. And so church, for years, I have dreamt of being a part of a joy-filled community of faith that I'm starting to continue to see. We call it vintage. And on many levels, I told you last week, I do feel like I'm a part of a community of faith that is broken, that is jacked up, that doesn't have it all put together, that, that joyfully wears our desperate dependent t-shirts, but points to God as a good God and a good father. Church, we live in a community where we have, as the church of Jesus Christ, we have this certainty of his promise. That was last week. That all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So there is no bad news. God is working it out for his glory and for your good. And not only do we, Church at Vintage, believe the promise, but we also believe that he loves us, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, not because we've achieved anything, but because he's chosen us. There is no bad news in the kingdom. And church today, you are more than a conqueror. Somebody say amen. amen. We won't get the depth of this today, but we'll try to scratch it a little bit. You in Christ are loved and you are more than a conqueror. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 8. We're starting in verse 31. Here's what Paul writes. 
So what then shall we say to these things? All these gaps, all these things that we've talked about, all these spiritual and eternal truths of who God is, that he called us, that he predestined us, that he's justified us. What shall we say about all these things? Look, church, if God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also then with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who then is to condemn? It is Christ. Jesus is the one who died, who more than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, church, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Spirit of God, help us believe that. Help us to hear your heart, not just for us, but for your glory to see how your commitment to yourself is expressed through the life and the death of your son and the resurrection so that we at Vintage might become one. Help us to receive your grace, your mercy, your truth, and your love, to be marked by it today so that the kingdom would advance tomorrow for your glory, we pray. And everybody said, amen. Now, I wanna start with just pondering for a moment. We will not get there today. The depth of God's most gracious love, the expression of that. In fact, we often say to people, you know how much you love someone and how much someone is worth based on what you're willing to pay for them. Like if you're dating someone right now, as you start to buy your girlfriend more expensive gifts, something's going on in your heart whether you know it or not. You're like, oh shoot, this might be going somewhere. Like I'm spending more time, I'm spending more treasure, I'm spending more talent. Something is worth to you what you're willing to actually spend on it. If you find yourself not buying your girlfriend gifts, then maybe that's someone else's future wife, not yours. You know what I'm saying? And so here's what we're gonna see today. How much does God view his people as worth? It is this most generous, gracious expression. Here's what the text says. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Church, I just want you to ponder that truth. God is for you. That's crazy. God, the creator of the cosmos, is for you, Jen. He's for you, Brian. He's for you, Adam. God is for you. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I'm for a lot of people. I actually really like being for people. Anyone like being for people? Anybody like being against people? Please go home. It's one of the great frustrations I have with the Church of America. We tend to be defined by what we're not for instead of what we are for. God is for you and God is for the world. He's for the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that's what the text is saying. So when I think about my life, who am I for? Like, I was thinking about this this week. Who are some of my favorite people in the world? The residents at Vintage Grace are some of my favorite people in the world. Like, I am so for them. Like, when they call, my phone is almost always on silent, do not disturb mode. I'm not ignoring you. I ignore everybody but the residents. Like when the res- in fact, today we have a brand new resident starting. We have another resident that just applied coming from Southern California that got accepted within our kids department. Like I love what God is doing through our residents. Raising up men and women to go into the harvest to be kingdom laborers, I am for them. And I will do anything I can, not just the residents, but all of our staff. I love our staff. Is that not the best ugly looking group of people you've ever seen? I mean, God is doing a work through us as a team to us in our desperate dependent reality 
Sinners saved by grace, saints who struggle with sin. God is working to us and within us, often in spite of us. For his more good, I am for these people. I would do anything in my power to help them move the gospel forward in their ministries. Not only them, but our elders. I am so humbled and grateful to serve on a team of men that are committed to the advancement of the gospel. They are committed more than anything else to the glory of God, to the good of our church and the organizational health, but to move the kingdom forward at times at great cost of time, of treasure, of talent, to send resources outside of El Dorado Hills. We have elders that are like, no, we will take the next hill that God calls us to. It's not about this hill in El Dorado Hills. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about Placerville. It's about Coloma. It's about Mount Shasta. It's about the places that he invites us into. God is for you. And I'm so thankful to be for these people and to be a part of people that are for the yet to believe, that are for our church. I'm thankful to be a part of this community of faith. It's hard for us to do all church gatherings. Usually in the summer, we try to do something. This is one of the ones, a long time ago at Church in the Park, where one of my good friends who was going to die the next year got baptized at this event. Like, I am for the kingdom of God moving forward to you and through you. The joy of Jesus that you have, that you experience the church. I just want you to know, you have a staff, an elder board, a team of, of messed up people, imperfect, flawed, but they are for you. Now, let me just be really, really honest. If I'm for you, that doesn't mean a whole lot. <laughs> because I'm just super limited. If I'm for you and you're like, hey, Drew, I need help with my car. Because I'm for you, I'll tell you, you don't want me to help with your car. Drew, I need this, I need this. Like, like, what good is it that Drew is for you? Let me just be very direct and honest. Eh. That's not what the text says. The text doesn't say your staff is for you, your elders are for you, your life. What's this text say? What then shall we say to these things? God is for us. He is with us. He is for us. And you know how much something is worth based on what someone's willing to pay? Because here's the truth of the matter. As much as I'm for all these people, that we call vintage grace, if God ever came to me and said, hey, Drew, I've got a deal for you. You choose them or Braden. Let me be very, very clear. Y'all are dead. It's not a hard choice for me. I choose my son Braden every single time. I remember vividly, there was one night I was, again, this goes back to Fountain Valley, living in the hospital with Braden, and we didn't get his port in yet. So this is first diagnosis. Remember, Braden, if you weren't here last week, I shared he was diagnosed at two, relapsed at three, bone marrow transplant at four. That's part of our story. The word grace at vintage is because everything is grace. You don't deserve healthy kids. I, I thought you'd get married one day, you'd have kids, everything would be awesome. No, I don't deserve healthy kids. Everything is grace. This sermon is grace. Your breath is grace. Everything is grace. And so I remember living in the hospital with Braden. This was that first week of diagnosis. The port wasn't in. And so he had this pick line. They had to run around his ear because he's a kid. So he's using his hands all the time. And we're trying to make it as normal as possible. And, and so we're living there. And this was one of the nights that Jen got to go home. And so I stayed. I got to sleep in the bed with him and, and just go through the night. And the nurses came in and they were always poking at him. Always poking at him. Like it was just more blood, more tests, more whatever, more medicine. So they came in, they were poking at him one day, and, and again, it was late at night, and he wakes up, and for whatever reason, he got ticked off. I don't know why anyone would get ticked off when people are poking at you at 2 a.m. So he's mad, and so he's literally throwing his hands, and he rips his pick line out. I remember sitting there, now again, I shared this last week, but my doctoral dissertation, which I never finished, I dropped out of school. It was lessons of God the Father from a father, how having a kid, Braden, we were pregnant with Carson, how having a kid was drastically changing my spiritual life. 
Learning what it meant to trust God as a good father. Learning what it meant to be a rebellious son, which all of my kids are. I'm sure your kids are perfect, but my kids got issues mainly coming from their father. And I still remember the blood flying everywhere and like God just saying, I did this for you. I willingly gave my son the cost of what it meant to watch him suffer, to walk and be poked and prodded and blood to be everywhere. I did this for you. Like I couldn't have picked a better Father's Day message than Romans chapter eight. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he gives his son. And so here's all Paul's trying to say on Father's Day. What then shall we say to all these things, all the gaps in our life, all the good theology that he's been teaching us? What should we say about all of this? What we should say is God is good. We are loved. If God is for us, then who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but rather he gave him up for us all. How then will he not also graciously give us all things? And yet I have a tendency to worry about the food shortage in America. And I forget on Father's Day of all days, how deep the Father's love is with me and for me. That we're overwhelmed. And this is crazy kind of love. It's crazy in light of creation. In fact, just this last week, we had Theology Club. It's something we do with our younger staff who haven't been able to go to seminary. And so it's, it's super cool. And we're total Bible nerds and we love it. We love the word. So we're walking through Theology Club and one of our young staff, she just says, man, I am overwhelmed by the love of the gospel and our God. And I'm like, then you're right where you should be. <laughs> That's what theology should do to us. It should overwhelm us at the glory of God and the goodness of him as a father. Because here's the truth of the matter. It overwhelms us because it's crazy that he loves us in light of his creation. Like God loves you. Have you just pondered that? If you ever look in the mirror, do you ever ask yourself that question? How? Like if you know the depth of your depravity, and let me just be very clear, we don't. I continually surprise myself with how effective I am as a sinner. How ugly I look as a son at times. But, God. If you ponder the depth of God's love, it's crazy in creation. You know, scientists are now telling us that there's up to one trillion types of species. And yet he made humanity in his image. To reign over the world. To give him glory. To rule with him. To experience some level of dominion so that we would give him the glory and we say, God, we can't do this apart from me. He's like, I never wanted you to do it apart from me as you do it with me. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. And of all the trillion species, he knows you and he loves you. Yes, you, Eric, yes, you, John, you, Jeremy, you, Jessica, he loves you. Wow. And I just think way too often we spend so much time getting to the next thing and Paul just wants us to pause. What then should we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he is with us in the gap, if he is sovereign, if he is for us, then what he gets is he did not even spare his own son. And that's what we mean by happy Father's Day. See, the true love of a father is not to protect their child from dying. The true love of a father is to prepare their son or their daughter to die. And Jesus does that for us by making way back to the father. He, the father's love for us lays down his life so that we might become a son that nothing will ever prevail against us, that his love assures us that he is good and he's working good in all things. And so do we ever doubt God's love in the midst of difficulty and suffering? Do you, church, ever doubt the promise? Raise your hand. Don't lie. This is probably a two-hand point of the sermon. Yeah, we do. And so Paul writes to remind us, you don't have to. 
But here's the truth of the matter. When your kid gets cancer, when all the gaps of life start to pile up, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to forget how loved I am by God. And so church, Paul wants us to consider the depth, the magnitude of God's love that is expressed tangibly. He sacrificed his greatest treasure, his sons, that we might become one. So then what would he withhold if he's going to give us all of this? Paul continues his argument and he says, rooted in all that Jesus has done in who he is, rooted in who Jesus is. He's going to describe who Jesus is. He's died. He's raised. He's at the right hand. He's interceding. The reality is that no one then can bring a legitimate charge. No one can condemn. No one, nothing can separate us from his love. Here's what Paul says, starting verse 33. So who then shall bring charge against God's elect? Notice he's starting with God. He's starting with why we should be secure because God's love was rooted in himself, not in us. It wasn't rooted in what we could do for God. It's God's choice. It's his sovereignty. It's God's elect. And yet there's two who's that feel like that bounce back and forth. I try to highlight one in yellow and one in white. The one in white is more like, well, who's making these accusations? The one in yellow is who has the credentials. If your son has cancer, you care a lot about who has the credentials to deal with your son's pain. We cared a lot about that as a church. In fact, even the term resident came from our hospital days where the teaching hospital mentality, we want to give people opportunity And yet what I loved is that every resident had the oversight of another doctor. When your son has cancer, you care about the oversight of the other doctor too. What are the credentials of Jesus? He is the one who died. More than that, he is the one who was raised. He is the one who was at the right hand of God. He is the one who is interceding for us. Often we pray to Jesus. You keep praying to Jesus. He's a good person to pray to. But you know the most active part of the Trinity is not Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us he's going to leave us a helper that's going to be with us, that's going to be in us, leading us. Where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's raised. He's exalted. His credentials means that death does not define him. He overcame the grave. Amen? That's important. Why? Because life is hard. Because cancer is real. Because brokenness is applying to every single one of us in our marriages, in our jobs, in our world. Whether it's because of our sin or because of someone else, it's because of the fall. And yet he is with us, he is for us, and he has the ability and the credibility to actually deal with it. He has the credentials to deal with that. He goes on, he says, yeah, but as things get hard, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Does that sound like a good day at the office? No, it sounds like America in the last few years. No, it sounds like the world that you and I live in. And yet here's what Paul reminds the church of. This is the divided church that the Jewish believers, the Gentile believers, they're fighting. He wants them to remember, guys, you are unified in the guy that loves you. That God is father, that God as king, that God is Lord. He loves you. He brings you together. And all these things will attempt to separate you from him and from each other. They don't have to. His credentials are superior to the attacks of the fallen world, your fallen flesh, and the enemy himself. That's the truth of what Paul's reminding us of after the promise of 828. He goes on, he says this, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now again, go to Psalm 44. That's where you're going to see this text quoted. Paul doesn't quote the Old Testament a lot, but this is one of those places. And even the commentators kind of wrestle. I I don't know, is he doing it for this reason or this reason or this reason? Some commentators say he's going back to the past to say, hey, it was consistent. If you want to follow Yahweh, suffering's going to come. I often joke that Jesus was not a very good salesman. Have you recognized that? He says, come be on my team. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, follow me, and you will die. (laughs) Way too often in the Church of America, we preach a false gospel. It's the prosperity gospel. It's the everything is awesome gospel. We dealt with that last week. Is everything awesome when we follow Jesus? Yes, but you're going to die. 
and it's gonna suffer and it's gonna hurt, but something is worth what you're willing to pay for it. Jesus calls his people not to easy believism, not to slap on the butt sermons, not to American Christianity. He calls us to the kingdom of God. That's what he calls us to. And in the kingdom of God, does he say, there will be no tribulation, no distress, no persecution. No, he actually tells us the opposite. It's guaranteed. If you don't follow me, the enemy's not gonna care about you. If you don't follow me, you'll have no issue on the throne of your heart. You'll just sit there by yourself and everything will be awesome. You'll just do what you think will make you happy. If you don't follow me, the world won't hate you because you'll be just like the world. But if you follow me, all of these things are inevitably going to come. And so one commentary said, look, he's saying to say, hey, in the Old Testament, that was true for people. If they follow Yahweh, it's going to cost them something. Another commentary said, look, in the future, he's writing it to be predictive. As you follow Jesus, it's going to be hard. I wonder if he's doing something different. I read an article from another commentary that said, maybe he's just giving us a pause because what has Paul been doing in verses 28 all the way through 36? He's been rapid firing questions at us. You wonder why does Drew talk too fast? It's Paul. Paul talks too fast. He doesn't even give him a chance to answer the question. He just goes, boom, 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 boom. And I want to encourage you, as you read the text this week, some of your homework, go read Acts chapter 2, verse 29 through 36. You'll see Peter at Pentecost, where he literally quotes 834 later. These are the credentials of Jesus. Stay focused on the who, not on the how. The who is who is Jesus. In America, we tend to just miss one little thing, and it blows everything. We tend to focus on the how. How many of you men like to fix things? Any of you men have issues fixing things? Again, you'll never call me to fix things because I'm incompetent. But as a husband, I'm so many times in a marriage relationship, whether it's my own counseling or with someone else's counseling, it's like, as the husband, we say, well, just how? How do I fix this? How do I make this better? And more often than not, the bride just simply says, I just wanted you to listen. I just wanted you to be with me. But as Americans, I am convinced we are so focused on the how. How are we going to deal with tribulation? How are we going to deal with distress? How are we going to deal with famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And in the kingdom of God, Jesus more often than not tells Peter to put his sword away than to pull it out. More often than not in the kingdom of God, you hear we see Jesus say, no, no, you don't need to do this because in the kingdom of God, I'm going to lay my life down. That's how you're going to get victory. You need to focus not on the how are we going to deal with this. You need to focus on the who is sovereign. It's why chapter 8 starts with 33, God's elect. He's in control. And so if God is a good God, in spite of your gap, he's with you and he's for you, which means nothing can separate you. That's what Paul is teaching us here. He's reminding us, and I don't think it's, it's in this context of just the past. I don't think 36 is just the future. I think verse 36 is a chance for us to just take our breath. And I said, oh yeah, remember, it was written. There is a truth of following Jesus that by the sword I may die, but it's also by the martyrs. I love reading stories of the martyrs in the early church. They would say things like, hey, can I just kiss my rope before I die? Because that's the gateway to glory for me. You think you're killing me, but the reality is you're giving me the gift of getting to Jesus and to the Father. You're making a way when there was no other way. And so Jesus is inspiring by the spirit, Paul, to say, guys, who shall we be afraid of? If God is with us, if God is for us, here's all the things he's been saying. Remember, Romans 8 is a huge chapter. We, our glorified state is guaranteed. The spirit's interceding. He's promised to work for our good. He has an eternal plan. He is sovereign and he's got it figured out. He does not spare his own son. And today he reminds us of the son's credential. He's conquered the grave. He's already victorious. He's with the father now. And so all of these questions, six different questions, boom, 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 boom. 
And I don't know if you're sitting in the church on that early Sunday and they're, they're reading the text together and, and someone says, wait, wait, I have an answer. And Paul's like, I don't want you to have an answer yet. I'm asking you all these questions to teach you how to think. That's our job as dads. That's our job as spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers is to teach our kids how to think. If they stand before Jesus and say, yeah, I'm here because my mom and dad told me I should love you. That's not love. If we stand before Jesus and say, yeah, you know, I, I came to faith because when I was four, there was this flannel graph presentation and now I love God. And what he would say is, well, how do I know you love me? That's what he's asking Peter. Peter, do you love me? If you love me, it's going to change the way you spend your life. And so Paul asks these six questions over and over again. He's preparing us to think. When Paul preaches, it's not just head knowledge. It's one of my great fears for the Church of America. We have all this head knowledge, and yet our hearts are far from him. We don't love the lost. We don't love the believers. We don't love others. And so Paul wants us to think. He wants us to love God. He wants to prepare us for the inevitable reality that's coming in the future. Paul's preaching is not just head. It's a part of his heart. It's a part of his hands. He says, what's coming in the future, 2 Corinthians, I'm talking like a madman with far great labors, far more imprisonments, beatings, near death, lashes, beaten, stone, shipwreck, adrift. Who else wants to join Paul and Jesus' team today? Put that on your connect card. Paul's saying, guys, it's going to hurt to follow Jesus, but it's going to be worth it, and you're going to be happier with him in the gap than you will be anywhere else in this world. It'll be dangerous. Over and over and over. There will be danger and danger and danger and danger and danger and danger. He's not stuttering. He's preparing us as a spiritual father. He's preparing us, which is the exact opposite of what we see in the Church of America. Everything's going to be awesome. That's the Lego movie, not the Bible but in the Bible, he says, it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. But God in your gap is going to be with you and he's going to be for you. And if God is good all the time, then we know before we get there. And so Paul is saying, hey, guys, let's have this conversation before the persecution comes. That's what I told you guys, the church. I don't typically preach Romans when your kid gets diagnosed with cancer. My prayer is you already believe it so that when he gets diagnosed, you get to experience God's love. But you know, that doesn't make sense. Experience God's love in the hospital. It's one of the greatest places my family ever has experienced the love of God. In our moments of desperation, crying out and God saying, I see you, I'm with you, and I'm for you, Romans 8, 31 and on. The text goes on. He says this. He says, not only that, but there will never be something that will separate you from me. Jesus gave us that warning back in John chapter 16. Jesus told us the final score. Jesus told us the victory. See, so often in my life, I come to gatherings looking for victory. Like I go to a Giants game and I don't know the final score. And so the game is stressful. Are we going to win? Are we not going to win? But, but what about, I mean, two days ago, right? Like our tendency as fans in this culture, in this world, is to like something until we stop liking it. Like I've been a Giants fan all year. You know why? Because they didn't spend money in the offseason. So I'm like, I'm out. I'm not rooting for them. Now they're good again. Guess what I am today? I'm a huge Giants fan. We're going to sweep the Dodgers. It's going to be awesome. That's how we treat our God. We treat our God with this fickle faith that says, God, I'm with you if you do what I want. And what if God has a plan that's better than what you want? And by what if, I mean he does. Do you trust him? Do you recognize that? And so if this is true, that we don't come to gatherings longing for a final score. We come to church already knowing the final score. We come to church already having victory assured, but we still come to church with gaps in our life. But there is no bad news because God is with you. He is for you and because he loves you. So then why is this so hard for me to get? 
Is this hard for anyone else to believe? Am I the only one here that struggles with Romans 8? When your kid gets cancer, you ask these questions. You experience this love of God, and what you wrestle with is, the truth of the matter is I would never willingly allow my kids to go through what God as Father has allowed his kids to go through. I'm gonna say it again, because I'm afraid you're like, wait, it sounds like Drew's picking on God. Pay attention. As a father, I would never willingly allow my kids to go through the difficult circumstances in our life that he allows us to. Why? Because God doesn't care about your comfort and what you quote unquote want. He cares about what you need. As a good God who loves you, he's going to allow you to experience gaps so that in the depth of your desperation and depravity, you experience the love of God and you will stop saying, I earned it or I deserved it or I was such a good son. You will recognize that he says, no, I see you as you are and where you are, but I love you in that reality. Church, that's incredible grace. That's incredible mercy. That's incredible love that he's less interested in what you want and he's more interested in giving you what you need, that he has the credentials to make that call, that he has the sovereignty. And so again, I told you, I don't preach Romans 5 in the midst of the suffering, but it's important that you and I remember that he's a good God, that he loves us. That when we read Romans 5, here's what Paul says, therefore we have been justified, we have peace with God, we rejoice in the hope and the glory of God, we rejoice in our sufferings. When I tell you how proud I am to be your pastor, here's why. Because someone's going to get diagnosed with cancer this month. And we as a church have an opportunity to experience the love of God. I got a text message from one of our leaders that says, man, Drew was talking at me when he said this week was going to stink. And I'm ready because I'm loved by God and because my God is good. It changes our circumstances. It doesn't take them away, but it helps us know that God is using them for his glory and for our good. It's why Paul says this in Romans 5. It's all about God's love, that hope does not put us to shame, but God loves us. And so when we think about, do we trust God in the gaps? How do we? Why do we? Because his credential says he's got you. Because he's with you, because he is for you, because he has a wisdom beyond our comprehension. He has eternal plan. There's a spiritual benefit to you. We say right at church, do you want to have more hope tomorrow? Do you want to have more joy? Do you want to have more assurance of your faith? Trials gives you that. So Jesus gives us something. Through allowing the brokenness of this world, he gives us himself. He gives us hope for a future. He gives us assurance of our faith. He gives us a chance to say, hey, I lack faith. Would you help me in my lack of faith, Jesus? He also gives us an opportunity that our genuine joy in suffering is a brilliant display of the complete sufficiency of Jesus. When you share your testimony of why you trust and treasure Jesus, and you say, well, because my marriage has no issues, my kids are perfect, everyone's like, that's not true. I know your kids. But when you get to tell people, man, there's a joy that I have living in the hospital. There's a love that I've experienced living in the hospital that I'm not going to get anywhere else. Please hear me. The world is listening then. They're not listening to your Facebook feed because they know it's fake because theirs is fake. They're listening to your faith feed. Your faith feed shows up when the suffering and the gaps are big. And when they're big, you win them with what you win them to and what you're winning them to is the joy of Jesus. You're not winning them to the perfect marriage. That doesn't happen until eternity. That doesn't happen until we have new bodies and new heads and new hearts. It doesn't happen until we are fully new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. But today, we live in the gap knowing that God loves us with an infinite love, that he is a good father. I'd encourage you, go read 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. 
In 1 Peter, you see Peter say, guys, as he's writing to the scattered church, he says, I want you to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, a joy that this world will not understand, and they will look at you when you lose your job. They will look at you when you lose your son. They will look at you when you lose the things that that matter to them, and they will see you being open-handed, and they will say, what is it about this man or woman's faith? And you'll point them to Jesus. That's your job. It's not about you having great faith. It's about you pointing to the author and the perfecter of your faith. And in that context, that's when we become more than conquerors. That's when Paul gets to the answer. Verse 36 for me was just this pause. Question, 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 question. And then he says, hey, remember, it's how it worked in the past. It's how it's going to work in the future. I just want to give you a chance to catch your breath. And then I want to tell you the really, really good news, that there is no bad news in the kingdom of God, just news that he's using for his glory and for your good. Yeah, but my kids got cancer. Yeah, but I lost my job. Yeah, but, 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 but. Yeah, I know. Paul has some experience with suffering. Remember his credentials? He has some experience, and because he loves you, he wants you to understand. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That word, hooper, nakayo, that word is a powerful word that means that your victory is assured. It's an enduring victory. It's a word that says no matter where you are in the gap, no matter where you are in the struggle, it's a word that says look up, not out. We look out at the how and we forget to look up at the who. That word drives us to the confidence that we have in Christ. In all of the brokenness of this world, we are more than conquerors. Why? Because he loved us. Because he's with us, because he's for us, because he's sovereign, because he redeems all things, he knows all things, and he's working all things for his glory and for your good. Because his love is what is rooted in covering all of his sovereignty, his love for you and his love for his glory. Because you cannot be separated. So he goes on, he says this, I am sure, I am confident. Remember, pain is the result of not having certainty in the future. Here's what Paul says, here's your certainty. I am confident, I am sure, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, the uncertain future, no powers, no height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everybody said? Church, do we believe this? We are more than conquerors because he loves us. And so again, this is an incredible chapter, way too bigger to cover in six sermons, let alone in, in two of these last two paragraphs. But here's what Paul has said in these last two paragraphs. We will one day be glorified. The Spirit prays for us. He promises to work in our grasp for our good. He's fulfilling his plan. He is for us. Nothing will prevail against us. He is so for us, he gave us his son. He is the judge, and he has justified us through the wrath of God being given to Jesus, that right now Jesus is risen, conquering the grave, interceding for us, that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us. And today, you are more than a conqueror in any and every circumstance. That's why there's no bad news. Because this is who you are. This is what Paul has been telling us. This is the recap of the last three sermons. And yet, if that's true, why don't I always feel like more than a champion? Even when I sing the song, I don't feel like a champion all the time. Even when I dance, why? And I want to give you just a moment to pause, like verse 36 gave us. To pause and consider the questions. And so I have a couple of questions for you. If all of this is true, why don't I feel like more of a champion more of the time? Here's the first one. Because I think that I fail to fully accept the depth of my need created by my sin. I think I fail to really recognize that there is a space in my heart that I've separated myself from God when I knock him off the throne of my heart. And, and, And there's a depth of my desperation that I actually spend my whole life trying to cover up, not trying to actually deal with. 
And so I want to encourage you this Father's Day to lean into the depth of your depravity, the need that my sin created when I walked away from God as Father, from God as King. Here's the second one. We tend to evaluate who we are based on the world scoring system. When we feel good, it's because of what other people say about us. When we feel bad, it's because they're not saying those things about us. We feel bad because we failed, we didn't measure up. We, we tend to look at our paradigm and our system and our structure through the world scoring system. And it really messes us up because we come to the kingdom and we're like, pull out your sword, let's go. And Jesus says, no, put your sword away. The world scoring system is, is up to the right. My scoring system is we're just gonna wander, but I'm gonna be with you. And it's gonna be way better than if you're apart from me. The third thing I think I don't feel like a chant more often is because we desperately look for significance and security and love in all the wrong places. We look for it from our wife. And when our wife doesn't give it to us, we go look for it from someone else. Your wife can't give you what God alone can give you. Your kids can't give you what God alone can give you. Your job cannot give you what God alone can, can, can give you. Security, assurance, love, eternity. And why don't we feel like more of a champion is because we're always longing and looking for the next fix for the joy in our heart that's actually a God space designed by him, created by him, and purchased by him. That's why we feel like less than a champion because we keep looking for things that faithfully overpromise and underdeliver. Why else don't I feel like a champion number four? Because we stop looking in general because we lose hope of ever finding. We just live in a world where like they just continually let us down. Yep. God told us the world would, that only he would be faithful. But we keep looking and we keep feeling unsatisfied. And so at some point we just give up and we just say, you know what? I'm just going to accept just a little bit of love here, a little bit of satisfaction here. And Jesus says, I came to give you life that you might have it abundantly. You might have it full. You might have the joy filled relationship with him. And so can I just encourage you, if you're not feeling more like a champion, don't give up three things that I think help us to more fully experience God's love. Here's the first one. Just acknowledge your need. Vintage, as much as I love being your pastor, y'all are a bunch of needy sheep. And I'm speaking as a sheep. I recognize how needy I am. That even God says, Drew, I'll give you everything in relationship with me. And I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to leave the God I love. It's why we have these hymns. It's why we have these psalms. It's why we have laments like in Psalm 44 that cry out and says, man, and so we church must be a people that don't just wear desperate dependent t-shirts, but we truly acknowledge our overwhelming need to be loved. We need to accept that everyone will disappoint us. Everyone. I don't mean that to be depressing. I mean that to drive you to Jesus. Humans will let you down because they weren't designed to give you what they could not have, what they could not create, what they could not offer. We need to realize that even after we trust Jesus, we're still going to be tempted to leave the one that we love. We're still going to be tempted to look for significance in places other than in God's love. We're still going to be tempted to be like, yeah, but they, they, they want me to do this and they offer me this. They cannot offer you what only Christ can offer you, sonship, lordship, life. And so this morning, I want to invite you to grab your commune elements and just slow down. I want to invite you to slow down and look at Jesus. We're not going to take communion until after this song. So you don't have to open it yet. Just hold it. I just want you to hold this. Communion is a time for us as a church to remember the God that loves us. To remember the price that he paid for us. That something is worth what one's willing to pay. We tend to remember that when we beat ourselves up because we forget God's faithfulness, that we need to go back and look to Jesus. We need to remember that he has come and that he has overcome the world. 
that he has overcome my sin and my desperation and my separation. As Paul concludes Romans 8, he he gives us this assertion of victory in Christ. He gives us assertion that, that he has won and that he has overcome, that he alone is worthy of praise. And part of why we miss it is because we would have done it differently. Because in our limited perspective, we would not have chosen to send our son to overcome the world, not the way that he did. He lays down his life. He gives his life, his body, his blood shed for us so that you might become a daughter or a son again. And so I want to invite you right now to slow down, to slow down and look at Jesus, to hold the elements and to sing this song. If you don't know the song, don't feel like you need to sing. Let the band sing it over you. If you know the song, I want to encourage you. Proclaim your glory is given to God. All hail King Jesus. Jesus, would you meet us in this moment? We're slowing down for you. We don't want to miss you. We got places to be and people to see, and yet you came to be with us, to see us. And so, Spirit of God, would you remind us of who we are in you? And would we, as your family, give you all the glory and hail you, King Jesus? We live in a divided world, but just like the Romans, we are called to unity in Christ as we live on mission in our daily lives. Let this message be an encouragement to you as you go into the spaces and places that God takes you this week. Until next time.